back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Author's Corner segment. And you know what? I am just, I guess I'm becoming crazy. I'm breaking records on how many shows I'm doing if you count every morning show on Clubhouse. Uh, but uh, I'm excited about this author. I'm excited to welcome her, Alexandra Bracken, as she's a best-selling author of The Darkest Minds, also a movie and, and other series. And we're going to talk about your uh, standalone contemporary fantasy lore, Alexandra. Yeah. You are, I guess, in a lot of ways, royalty in certain ways because of getting something that every author dreams of, a movie, right? Oh, yeah. I will say it is. it was sort of like a one in a million chance, and I honestly cannot believe it actually happened because even when you option your book rights and the the option for the darkest minds happened in like 2011 and obviously they made the movie in 2018 so it took them six years and for pretty much 99 percent of those six years i was like it's never gonna happen they're not gonna go through with it then all of a sudden it did it was really wild well i think it's definitely wild and i mean that that dream but as an author you woke up every day didn't you say to yourself you know i when an author writes a book they want it to be something more right and, and I guess being published is the first great thing, right? And how did you go about getting published? For I, Definitely a lot of authors listen to this and say to themselves, hey, I wrote a book, and how do I get published? So I knew from a really young age that I wanted to be a writer. I was definitely one of those like kind of weirdo kids who had a very intense vision of their future and just sort of knew intuitively that I wanted to write, and I specifically wanted to write books for young readers rather than adults. So I kind of just chased that my whole life. I wrote pretty regularly through middle school, through high school. And then when I was in college, I decided I would participate in National Novel Writing Month. It happens every November. It's the abbreviated term is NaNoWriMo. Um, And the goal is to write one 50,000 word novel over the course of the month of November. And so I did that my freshman year and I became kind of obsessed with the process of writing a novel. you know, the dedication it takes to just sit down every single day and hammer out some words and to figure out the story and the characters, like I just loved it. And so I wrote pretty much all through college. And the second book I wrote, I ended up getting an agent for on my 21st birthday. And then I sold my first book, uh, my second semester of senior year. And then after that, I went to work in publishing because I still needed a day job because unfortunately, publishing does not yeah, see, see, work, see, see, working in publishing. We have to become friends, right? Because again, I think it's just part of my consulting and things I do working with authors all the time, helping build their business and brand that they always are saying, what's the next thing? What are those tap, tips and stuff? Are you still in publishing? No, this I many actually years? was finally able to write full time Congrats. which was always a dream of yeah. mine so that's what I'm doing now but I'm like very grateful for my publishing days because it taught me a lot about marketing and self-promotion and also just sort of the ins and outs of the industry it becomes like really important to figure out which battles are worth fighting um as an author because you know it's depending on you know how much success that you've had how many books that you've sold authors tend to not have very much control over their books once they sell them Aside from, you know, obviously editing them, but like in terms of covers and in terms of what actually happens with the promotion on the publisher side, like you don't tend to have much say. All right. So let's kind of go into lore now. And how did you come up with that idea to write that book? Oh, so this is sort of an interesting story because I feel like I really wish I had those kind of lightning bolt ideas that some authors describe as having like 
they're out for a walk or they're in the shower and all of a sudden this idea comes to them fully formed. That's never the case with me. Usually what ends up happening is I have what I call like idea soup where I'm thinking, you know, I really want to write a story that uses Greek mythology, but I also really want to write a book that's sort of like a competition. And then, you know, with lore, especially outwardly, it is a very action packed twisty thriller um i sort of pitch it as being like the hunger games only with greek gods yes it's set in new york city it's a modern day book um but it obviously uses and pulls from the ancient stories without being a retelling of any one myth so my goal was to try to write kind of a modern myth with it if that makes sense and at the time i was really brainstorming this was like 2017 2018 and so we were having a lot of cultural societal conversations about the Me Too movement and um, how women kind of navigate through the world. So that, you know, also got thrown into the idea soup because growing up, my mom's side of the family is Greek. And I um, grew up reading the myths from a really young age. I think she kind of forgot how dark and twisted a lot of the stories are because she handed my siblings and I this book as a way to kind of start talking about that Greek heritage. And from a young age, I had, like, I took a lot of issue with the fact that, you know, a lot of the women weren't allowed to go out and have these great epic adventures. They were punished for showing anger or jealousy or for having any sort of ambition. Um, Sounds like so, today. It seems like our society's yeah, gone back to that you know, today. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But you can kind of see how those that those feelings that I had reading the myths as a kid have kind of connected to the conversations that we're having today as a modern society and um, just in terms of, you know, the Me Too movement and all of those other discussions that we've had, all of those other important discussions that we've had. So, yeah, it was a really interesting process writing this book. I mean, I think it's such a great process of writing the book. And it just interests me because of the fact of the matter is you look at Greeks and how the Greeks fell and the Romans fell. It's when the way they treated women at the end time and how they became such a unproductive part of society that industry, uh, uh, you know, empires fell, you know, in your thoughts on that in some ways. And you look at the things in Greek mythology today and stuff and what was happening. I mean, I was thinking, yes. I mean, yes and no. I One of the things that always really bothered me about Greek mythology was just the sheer amount of sexual assault that happens in the stories, and it's sort of oh, goodness weirdly gracious. downplayed How a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I just think it's interesting, too, because Greek mythology is really – how do I want to put this – I don't know if you had this when you were in school too, but like we had whole units on ancient Greek culture and ancient Rome and also the myths themselves. So I feel like Greek myths kind of form the bedrock of a lot of our modern day storytelling and a lot of our philosophy and, you know, obviously our systems of government. So it's kind of interesting to see that we have not made certain, we haven't made advancements in certain areas, let's say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, what, what, what was, uh, how much research did you have to do to write this book? I ended up doing quite a bit of research for it because I wanted really to have this. So the book is centered on, um, 
Laura. She's a 17-year-old living in New York City, but she's grown up in like a cult-like Spartan-esque society of hunters, all of whom are descended from some of the ancient world's greatest heroes like Heracles, and in Laura's case, Perseus, but also Achilles, and so on and so forth. And so I wanted this sort of like cult-like society that's hidden within our world to actually still observe some of the ideas and philosophies and rituals of ancient Greece. So I did a lot of research on that end, and I had to really revisit a lot of the myths to figure out how I could pull them in and kind of weave them throughout the story. Very, very good. And uh, what did you learn most from uh, writing this? Oh my gosh. Well, on the storytelling side, I learned how important it was to make sure you have a clear vision of your antagonist's arc from the very beginning. That was the thing I struggled with the most was figuring out what the bad guy wanted, which sounds, you know, it seems like it should be obvious, but it, you know, sometimes it really isn't. But um, I think what I've learned about myself as a storyteller was just that I really like stories that dig down deep into the human experience and kind of, you know, even if there's magic and fantasy and gods happening all around, like I really want to talk about who we are as people and who we could be. And I think Lore really represents that as a character, kind of that important, that important thing that we all go through in our lives where we really try to figure out the difference between who the world wants us to be and who we want ourselves to be. And I had a lot of fun and, you know, it was, it was a hard work, but I had a lot of fun writing lore and navigating her through that's, that, that, that's great. that journey. Great. And what's your goal for the listeners to get out of this? I, you know, I often feel like people are very insistent that literature has to be very um, elitist or like very high and mighty, or they feel like every book should be pushing the genre or pushing the art form <laughs> literature further and further but I also think that literature can just be entertaining and it's totally okay if it's also entertaining with a nice message or with an important message and so with lore one thing I was really thinking about and it was probably because of when I was really working on it which was throughout the pandemic last year I was like what I really want is like an escapist fantasy that readers can get lost in but I also want them to take away that bigger message about um patriarchal structures and how damaging they can be to both men and women and trying to escape them or navigate through them if you don't fit within those like very rigid guidelines of um, power and who gets to have power and who doesn't get to have power. So I hope everybody gets like a very entertaining read out of this, but also comes away thinking about that. Well, that's fantastic. And I think that you put so much work into us and you love writing and i'm so excited for you in your journey uh, as an author and uh, this book sounds fantastic and uh where is the best place we can connect with you and learn more about you where can we go you can find me online at alexandrabracken.com and i'm on instagram and twitter at alex bracken fantastic uh, i really enjoyed the conversation this is something that everyone needs to pick up i have the book i'm going to have to definitely uh, sit down and read it uh, this is something that really interests me anything that goes deep into something thing like that with mythology really interests me i don't know i like studying ancient cultures and see why the heck we still are doing the same practices today because i have no yeah. idea why we don't evolve so that proves the evolution of how people evolve is not part of the evolutionary process other things are but not that because uh, as humans, we somehow devolve, 
de-evolved yeah. in so I many mean, ways. Yeah. As the old saying goes, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat those patterns. And I feel like we do ultimately end up repeating patterns just because it's human nature. But we don't have to. We who would have thunk we that, that we're them. thinking on Wednesday tomorrow and how scared everyone is in this country. So I appreciate you stopping by. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. You're, um, you're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. And now back to the show. We're back to Neil Haley's show here on the Author's Corner segment. You know, and, and I think about New Year's resolutions and I think about, oh my gosh, what did I already give up on and what did I do? So our guest today, uh, Dr. Michael Greger, is going to really uh, get into different things. He, in his book, again, is How Not to Diet uh, Cookbook. And uh, I just really, it's interesting. So Dr. Greger, how are you? And thanks for coming on. I'm doing so well. Thanks for having me on. All right. So, Dr. Michael, let's kind of talk, uh, talk about your background. For people that don't know who you are, give it a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm a physician specializing in lifestyle medicine um, and uh, clinical nutrition. And, uh, yeah, the book uh, How Not to Diet is kind of a, a spin off my earlier book, How Not to Die. Uh, talking about uh, how we can use the lifestyle approaches to prevent, arrest, and reverse some of our leading killer diseases. So tell me why we shouldn't diet. Oh, well, uh, I mean, the diets don't work by definition because going on a diet implies at some point you got to go off a diet. Permanent weight loss requires permanent dietary change. Healthier habits just have to become a way of life. And if it's going to be lifelong, you want to lead to a long life. Thankfully, the single best diet proven for weight loss may just so happen to be the safest, cheapest way to eat for the longest, healthiest life. Really? Okay. So let's talk about how, why you just, you said you decided to write the book in a lot of ways. What was the mindset? What do you want to get out of writing this book? Oh, you know, with so much uh, nutritional noise and nonsense these days, I just wanted there to finally be an evidence-based diet book. And I said literally thousands of studies uh, digging up every possible tip, trick, tweak, technique proven 
to accelerate the loss of body fat, to give people every possible advantage, and basically build the optimal weight loss solution from the ground up. And that that's so good. So what tips can you provide without giving away the book of, of ways that we should try to diet or try to lose weight? Oh, well, uh, the first half of the book is uh, just talking about the optimal criteria for weight loss. Um, uh, the, um, I was able to find 17 in the peer-reviewed medical literature, uh, just in terms of aspects of one's diet um, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to optimize uh, loss of weight. And really, it comes down to be a diet centered around whole plant foods. So this real food grows out of the ground, natural foods from fields, not factories, diet centered around whole plant foods. Um, uh, and, uh, I mean, so that's really the, the kind of the healthiest way to eat. And the second half of the book is basically, uh, centers around, uh, my so-called 21 tweaks to accelerate the loss of body fat. And so that's regardless of what you eat the rest of the time, there's certain things we can do. It's not just what we eat, but how, when, um, uh, to, uh, to kind of, uh, to step it up a bit further. And I'd be happy to talk about, uh, any of those certainly. All right. Let's kind of talk about that in certain ways. I see. I never like giving away a book. Uh, so like, what is the, the process when you think what right is right to eat? A lot of times it's nasty, right? You know, y- your wife says, so make sure you eat these vegetables. I'm being blunt. I just had this call with, uh, somebody from uh, a collaboration where I'm not getting paid and telling me what to do. And it, it didn't, it didn't, wasn't the greatest conversation because I hate to be told what to do. <laughs> so my wife telling me to eat vegetables, I'm like, oh, this is nasty. I don't want to eat this. So I'll just, uh, I'd just rather go, you know, and eat whatever I want to eat. I'm a man, right? So, you know, right. speaking to men now, let's speak to men, not women. Women are like, okay, I'll follow your diet cookbook. No problem. It'll be easy. I'll do it. But when you're talking to them about a man, but they won't, they won't stick to it, but they'll say they will. For me, I'm like, you're, forget you. It's nasty. I don't want to taste that food. I, I'll just, t- I'll take some vitamins or I'll do something like that. What if, so, right, so, so right, kind of right, give it, yeah. give it, give me that. Yeah. Yeah. No one, no one wants to be told what to do. Um, but uh, at the same time, everyone wants to live a long, healthy, vital, vibrant life. Um, unfortunately, those two uh, don't often uh, go together. Right? There's still a lot of things that feel great, um, uh, you know, whether it's uh, heroin or I mean, there's lots of, you know, you know, I mean, the reason people smoke is because the, the, the you know, the, the, the beneficial effects it has on um, on how it makes them feel. So uh, so at some, uh, there, there certainly are some things. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, we have to, uh, we have to realize that, you know, eating, you know, pints of frosting every day, as good as it may be, um, uh, may, uh, not end up, uh, fulfilling our true goals in life, which may be wanting to watch your grandkids grow up or, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, se- uh, you know, sexual function later in life. If we're talking about men. So, know, so, so, so you're, you're, you're going with the stick, not the carrot doctor. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. No. Uh, well, no, with the character, right. It's not just about adding years to your life, but life to your years. Um, and, you know, so you just, so that's what I do. I sit down with patients and say, look, what do you want to do? What are your goals? I mean, what do you care about in life? And, you know, some people, you know, have really lofty goals and some people just have the basics. They want to well, be come able on. To, this is know. this is all human beings. The successful people have a specific way they want to live, the meaning is uh, in work wise. And then the successful people for health wise have health goals. So I think that you're trying. But you're really giving me that stick saying, look, what's going to happen adversely. Well, so, I mean, look, yeah. so I, right, I'm giving, look it's, it's your body. Uh, it's your life. 
Um, you want to go smoke cigarettes, go bungee jumping, do whatever you want. Absolutely. I mean, as a physician, all I can do is share with you um, the you know predictable consequences of your actions. Um, and so then you make up your own mind. Um, and uh, and so so right. So the book is really for people that are really interested in living a longer, healthier lives. And if they're not, then, you know, the, you know, God bless them and do, you know, do whatever you want. But uh, if you want to know what the science says about how to, uh, you know, best feed yourself and your family, that's what, uh, you know, my website, nutritionfacts.org is for. And, you know, all proceeds I receive from the sale of this book all goes to charity. In fact, all my books, um, I, you know, I, I run a, you know, 501c3 nonprofit. Um, so this is all about just getting this information out of your journal line, you know, giving all the secrets away. That's the whole point is because I want people to, exactly. eat healthier, to live healthier, the, go to the library, don't pen a, spend a penny for this book. I just want people um, to have this information. Yeah, I'm being nice because, again, I want people to go buy the book. But So tell me what I need to do. So let's just talk about breakfast. We're not going to give away everything. What should I have for breakfast? <laughs> Um, uh, oh, uh, uh, you know, a good breakfast would be, um, uh, you know, uh, oatmeal, berry, nuts, uh, you know, cinnamon, something like that. And of course, there's various grades of oatmeal with the lowest possible being the you know, instant oatmeal with added sugar and garbage. Uh, better to have the unsweetened, better and, and pre-cooked. Even better than that is the steel cutouts um, uh, or the highest level, oat groats, which is what the oat looks like before it's uh, cut two or three times in steel cutouts. Um, and that, and uh, so by eating oats in, in the, really the purest form, these oat groats, and it's chewy, wonderful, delicious. You won't be able to go back to regular mushy oats. Um, it actually, um, uh, because no matter how well you chew, um, uh, bits and pieces of those oats make it down to the colon and act as prebiotics, has these wonderful fiber-resistant starch, um, uh, and feeds your good gut flora, and that actually has beneficial effects not only in your digestive tract, but your immune system, psychological health, um, uh, anti-inflammatory, all sorts of other benefits. And so uh, breakfast is the time to not only feed yourself, but to feed your good gut bacteria and uh, some oat groats with uh, berries, the healthiest fruits, um, uh, you know, cinnamon, antioxidant packed spice, that would, and uh, um, nuts and seeds, probably walnuts, the healthiest nuts, uh, ground flax seeds, healthiest seeds. Um, that would be a great way to start the day. How much protein's in all that? Oh, well, uh, you really just, uh, I mean, the, the goal of the student of medicine has, uh, uh, they're the ones that come up with the recommended daily allowances. They want everyone to get 0.8 grams for a healthy kilogram body weight a day. It comes out only to be about 50 grams of protein a day. Um, I mean, you know, you can, you can, you can oh, really, really. So you don't yeah, need yeah. as much oh, yeah. protein as people believe like the yeah, old days. Yeah. In fact, I mean, the average American is getting twice as much protein, um, uh, than, than they actually need in their diet. Um, and so, it, oh yeah, it's really not something. I mean, there's the, a the protein deficiency disease called quashiorcor. It's like, how many people do you know have come down with the quashiorcor? I mean, it's this is not something you see in the developed world. Um, uh, but I mean, what we do see are diseases of excess. Um, uh, we don't see deficiency disease anymore, like quashiorcor and pellagra and beriberi and scurvy. We see diseases of excess excess saturated fat, trans fat, sodium, sugar, and that is obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and um, heart disease. So some of the leading killers. So it's really more about uh, not uh, this, this kind of deficiency mindset. Oh, well, where am I going to get my riboflavin? It's like, get, how am I going to stick to the sodium um, uh, you know, guidelines? The American Heart Association wants under 1,500 milligrams of sodium a day. That's really hard to do if you're eating any processed crap. Um, and so, I mean, that's really where we, you know, it's like, okay, how can I, 
Uh, and that's something you know that we had to deal I, with with a with a with a cookbook. How do you make things sweet, sweet without sugar? How do you make things salty without salt? Um, uh, we wanted to make sure not only is every recipe in this cookbook healthy, but every ingredient of every recipe is healthy. And I'm uh, proud of what we came up with. You know, I think that ultimately, when you talk about the the, the different things that we uh, eat, uh, it's uh, it's interesting because I guess you feel it after you eat fast foods, after you overeat. Your body feels it, and your body feels it for a while until it, you release it. Uh, so well, that, yeah. yeah. Good. People don't realize how good they're going to feel um, until they eat healthy. So, you know, I have people, you know, I mean, it's easy as a physician to get people who are scared, just had a heart attack, just had a cancer diagnosis, something to eat healthier, right? Because they have this kind of, you know, looming sword dangling over their head. Um, but it's like, wait a second, what do you do about young people who, you know, feel invulnerable? You know, you can't tell young people about, you know, breast cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's. They don't care about any of that. Uh, you can talk to them about acne and athletic performance. There's a few things you can kind of. No, I, I'll just jump right into it. So, yeah. So best place we can find information. You gave us great breakfast tips, uh, great information for sure. Where can we find info on you? Where can we go? By the book. Um, nutritionfacts.org. That's a free nonprofit science-based public service. Daily updates, the latest in nutrition research via bite-sized videos. Now on more than 2,000 health topics, new videos and articles uploaded nearly every day at nutritionfacts.org. All right. Thanks for calling. I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, thanks so much. All right, take it. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. Right. We'll be back in just Celebrity Slots. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rob Roselli Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Rob Roselli. Rob, this is just one of the craziest days that could happen. Is there anything that's going to happen weird today, or is it going to go perfectly fine? Oh. I mean, there's a lot of hype surrounding what's going to be, what's going to happen. And, you know, this person is going to be arrested. Trump's going to continue in power and all this stuff. And not, I don't think any of it's going to happen. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think you'll have a, quote, peaceful transition and Biden will be sworn in. Unfortunately, that's the way it's going to go. Now, about this military occupation of Washington, D.C., uh, apparently, I think a lot of that's just theater just to just to make a point, you know, Trump Trump supporters are violent. They need the military deterrence, or else they're going to come and bum rush the Capitol or something like that. Crazy, yeah. It's not that, that's anyway. not that's just not going to happen, Rob. Right? You, it, even though you, mm -hmm. as a person that they consider, some people consider you a conspiracist, and you've been right on point all the way through since you've been on this show, since the beginning. You just don't think that Trump's going to take not leave you think he's leaving walking away and it's over 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's over. It, it always has been, uh, at least for the last couple of weeks. I mean, once all the, all the lawsuits were turned away and all the, all the legitimate protests were, were turned down, there's nothing else for Trump to do. Um, you know, people are talking about staying in a military coup and, you know, and this and that. But I think, look, Biden's going to be sworn in as president, the senile old man. And then, and then the fun really begins. I think that's what we really need to focus on and worry about is when this guy actually takes power, which is a few hours from now, and the radicals that are going to be in charge because he's just, I mean, Biden's a ghost. Let's face it. Let's call him Weekend at Biden's. Remember the movie Weekend at Bernie's? He's just a body to fill a to fill a spot, and then but the radicals around him are really going to be the ones running the show, and that's where we you can just look at the people that he's appointing and this sort of thing, and that's what we really need to worry about is is the radicals that he's appointing. Right? And, Do you think he's going to be that radical, or think that uh, Kamala Harris is more radical than he is? Well, of course, she's more radical than he is. And that's, you know, people like her are going to be the ones really, really running the show. I mean, Biden, Biden's a paperweight. That's all the guy is. I mean, he's, he's, he's barely, he might even be senile at this point, but he, he, he's barely cognitive. So, you know, he's not running the show. And then you have things like you know, last week we talked about Orwell's 1984. We went through each aspect of it. And we tabulated it on the last show. That's and then what do you have? I mean, the most prominent thing coming out of these people right now is the two minutes of hate. I mean, they're not they're not only satisfied with winning. They have the House, the Senate, and now the presidency. They're not only satisfied with that, but now they want to go after Trump supporters. And they're using words like deprogramming. Deprogramming is once I heard this Sandy Cortez, this congresswoman from New York City. What she, what she called it, and deprogramming to me sounds a lot like re-education and re-education camps. And I think this is what's coming for Trump supporters. And then, you know, then if you get yeah. a Trump back, or excuse me. Yeah, so you um, think they're going to go after lots of people that supported Trump, uh, like really supported him, like not quietly being a closet Trumpster, but people that were really into this are going to be really persecuted. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And this is this they're going to try and make examples of people, shut people up from supporting him ever again because they're trying to get rid of him. And these people let legitimate hatred. That's why I call it the two, the two minutes of hate right out of World War 1984. You could see it by what these people are saying. When, when they talk about deprogramming, this is exactly what they mean. I mean, re-education. I mean, they they hate Trump. They hate his supporters. They hate them. They hate the conservative traditional America, the, the Christian America. They hate. They hate God, um, and they love themselves. They think they've, they've deified themselves. And, of course, these are just the front people. Of course, you know, being a, quote, conspiracy theorist, you know, there's always more powerful people in the background that are pulling the strings of these idiots and, and that you see on TV. I mean, the George Soros of the world and the Bilderberg groups and these kinds of people. But the goal is really to get rid of the United States of America and merge it into some kind of new world order, but it's not going to go down like that. It, that's what they're trying to do, but it's going to get it's going to get ugly. Because not everybody's going to go for it. You're going to have mass confusion, and you probably eventually what these people are pushing for, and I'm not advocating it, 
very careful to say it, but what these people are pushing for is, is what they're going to get is a civil war in this country because people aren't going to stand for re-education camps and this sort of thing. And then, you know, who knows where it's going to go. Right. Who knows where it's going to go? It's going to be something where, you know, you're, you're, you're looking one at one point in time, boom. And then next time, wow, wow. Uh, where, where to go next. So I guess our, on these episodes, you're going to really relate to again, box of sunglasses.com and that your prediction of what America is going to look like under a Biden presidency. Now, could there be something like the Capitol again today? And could Trump have something out up his sleeve before he leaves as a like last ditch effort? You don't think? I, I don't think so. Neil, I think just, just a bunch of pardons, you know, for people that, that you probably expected them to pardon, but I, I don't think, I don't see anything really uh, earth shattering that he's going to do or try to do in the last, whatever, six hours that he has left or whatever it is. I think he's out of, you know, he's, he, he's, he's out of ammunition, so to speak. There's nothing left to, uh, to do except leave. I mean, you know, they fraudulently, you know, Biden was fraudulently elected. And the whole court system is really seeing how much influence the Chinese Communist Party already has over the United States between the voter fraud and the control they have over many politicians. I mean, look at this guy. What's his name? Swalwell or whatever from California. I mean, he was caught sleeping with a Chinese spy. And he's right back on the Senate Intelligence Committee. So what does that tell you? And Diane Feinstein with her Chinese intelligence driver for 20 years, and, you know, she's still around. And, you know, the, the influence that the Chinese Congress already have and over our industry and over our, our manufacturers and, and Trump is standing up to all this. And this is why they hate him so much. He, he, he was upsetting the apple cart or the, you know, or the swamp or whatever you want to call it that Washington, D.C. is. And even even the rhino Republicans like Mitch McConnell were turning on him with this sham impeachment trial. Now, people may think it's somewhat of a joke, you know, impeaching a guy that's not even president anymore. I, I happen to not think so. I think what they're trying to do is set this up so fast, impeach him, and just make up some kind of law. Well, you can't run for president again because you're impeached. I think that's, I think that's the goal. It's to just make up a law to saying, well, yeah, you're not president anymore, but you were voted to be impeached on your on your last day, so therefore you can't run for president again. I I, I think that's the end game with that. I, I don't think it's as big a joke as people are making it out to be or unconstitutional. It might be unconstitutional, but since when do these people care about the Constitution or following laws as long as it benefits them? So I think that's what the goal is there. So this may really be it for Trump. And plus you have Biden, you know, trying to um, make into citizens, what is it, 20 million illegal aliens? Plus you have caravans of illegal aliens on their way to the United States right now. So he's going to make all those illegal aliens, you're going to make them all citizens and they're all going to vote Democrat because the Democrats going to give them all the free stuff. So they're changing the demographics of the nation as we speak. So. I don't know if the, I don't know if the Republicans ever recover from this. I don't know if the country. I don't think the country recovers. No, from I don't. This I don't think the Republicans are ever going to recover because they back Trump. I don't think they'll ever recover again because of that. Well, they they 
there's 70 something million, 74, 75 million people that support Trump. I mean, if they back Trump, they would, but even if they do, if you're with all the tens of millions of illegal aliens that Biden and the Democrats are going to legalize, it's not going to matter because they're going to overwhelm them with the demographics. And then don't forget, they're looking to make Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico into states. So you're going to have four more Democratic senators. So they got the Senate locked up. So these people are locking themselves into power. They're just, you know, it's much bigger than just Trump leaving office. These people are locking themselves into power. And of course, the nation can't afford any of this. So that you have that exactly. whole bit of insanity going on. We've talked about the Federal Reserve System, but how about that whole thing's about to go bust? You know, maybe this is all planned. Maybe they planned it that way. The system goes bust, and then they try to merge us into some kind of new world order with Europe and China. Which I think, is that, that, I think that's, that's, what, that's what they're trying to create is global society where Biden could be in control of the whole global world. That's my no, opinion. Biden. Not Biden. Yeah, the United no, States would be in charge of the entire global world, but we would we kind of would mesh towards their ideals. Yeah, but people aren't going to stand for it. I think they're trying to call it the Great Reset. They're trying to fit a, a, a square into a, into a circle. It's just not going to work. I mean, this is what they're trying for. But so you're going to have mass insanity. I mean, you're just going to have complete chaos in the world. Is what's going to happen. I mean, you're already seeing it in Europe. I mean, Europe's being overrun by a migrant caravan, and we're going to have our own migrant caravans. And I'm look, I'm not anti-immigrant. I mean, my everybody's grandparents are immigrants. All I'm saying is people just come here legitimately and follow the rules and anybody can be let in. And I'm not, I'm not saying that because that's what people know, you know, you, that, that's the, that's the, that's the knee jerk response is, oh, you're, you're a racist and all this, you're anti-immigrant, you're hating. You know, no, you just want people to follow the laws, but that's, it's, it's just emotional responses. But again, people are going to get, people that voted for Biden are going to get what they, what they wish for. And it's really, um, it's really sad. I, I don't think this country survives it. What these people are planning to do and what they're already doing. So, all right. So, boxsunglasses.com, Rob. Boxsunglasses.com for more information. You can check out all the different things there. And uh, uh, soon, uh, I think you'll be releasing another book. We'll talk more about that throughout this new year. And uh, uh, continued. Uh, let's hope our country. Uh, can survive this and we'll see what happens especially because we don't want a such a one-sided world because then the vo certain voices will be no longer heard well yeah look I, i've written i've kind of written the way things are going down i've written this into my book pleased to meet you and that's available right now on the website and that's a quick one hour read so people can pick that up on amazon um again it's my book, Pleased to Meet You, um, and that talks, it kind of goes through a conversation, a historical conversation between a Satan character and a 1980, and Orwell's 1984. And we can talk about this more next week, but it basically, this is, this is how things are going to go down. It's not going to go down orderly. It's going to go down and it's going to devolve into chaos. And I think we're already starting to see signs of that, but Again, boxofsunglasses.com, and don't forget God's simple salvation plan. You know, it's time to be rooted in the only thing that's true, the only thing that you can really 100% trust anymore. And, you know, and I'm not the news, 
Donald Trump, me, anything. They were all imperfect humans, but the Bible is the only thing that people can 100% trust. So I highly suggest people become more familiar with it and, and Jesus as their savior because things right. are going to get interesting, to say the least. All right, Rob, thanks for stopping by. Great, uh, great topic again, and let's see what happens today. All right, Neil, we'll talk to you tonight. We'll talk to you later. All right, that was the Robert Sellers Show, guys. Take care. Oh, I'm really excited about this interview. Again, this is Neil Haley Show. And Neil Haley, and uh, you talk about fanatics. There's probably one fanatic fan bigger than any fan, meaning that has really put it out there. And then the stories we have to find out about being a fan of this organization, which is the Raiders, that you have to be a warrior. And he talks about putting his war paint on. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Wayne Mabry. And he is the violator. Wayne, thanks for stopping by the Neil Haley show. And you know what? When you think about, I never thought I'd interview a super fan, but after doing research on you and knowing how crazy it was to be an Oakland Raider fan back when it was Oakland, and we're going to go through all the history in this story. It was a, it was craziness, right? Going to a football game uh, to try to survive as a fan in Oakland, right? It's a different environment to go to a football game. Well, first of all, Neil, thanks for having me on. And as far as surviving as a fan, you go there, you go to games for the experience. You cannot get that experience sitting at home, even in your local bar. You cannot get the same atmosphere. There are no commercials when you're at the stadium. There's no commercials, but I mean, just talking about how crazy the games were where the fan, there, there was more fights in the stands sometimes of Raider games. The Raiders is just a crazy atmosphere always. And no, and when you're an away team, you don't want to, you didn't want to go to Oakland. So tell us this process of how you became the violator. Well, this process began, it was born as a kid. I had always had a different spirit inside didn't know how to identify it, but it made me a little bit different than my peers. And they was always saying, you were a little bit strange, but they couldn't figure out what that was. I was always into knights and armor and stuff like that. Anything medieval, I'm all over it, you know? Uh, so anyway, 1991, I'm sitting in, well, standing in my section in the uh, LA Coliseum around a bunch of uh, other celebrities and uh, they, didn't, they didn't like getting loud and being obnoxious. So right away, I was in the wrong spot and I knew it. <laughs> but I'm right behind the bench. They can hear me. They, we can make eye contact. So I was in the perfect spot. So for about a year and a half, couple of seasons, they would always ask me when I came in, are you going to sit down today? And I used to tell them, you may as well take that seat out because I'll never <laughs> use it. So this went on and on, and they would say, man, you're too loud. We had a football game. And if I can say it on your show, get up off your keisters and cheer this team on. They need our energy yes. right now. So the offseason of 1990, me and a couple of friends, we had this Mad Max mentality. So we like, let's bring some of that into the Raider games. So that's how Violator was released. And uh, he's been stumping the yard for 29 plus years now. Okay. Wow. And so once, so once people told you to sit down, 
then you had to get the war paint on and come up with the gimmick. So coming up with that gimmick of the violator, where, how did you first come up with it? Is it kind of evolved in the 30 years or kind of explain? If you kind of go back and Google him, yes, he has evolved, but just like we do in life, we evolve and grow. But I always knew in my mind exactly what I wanted him to look like. And uh, what you see today is a combination of all those years uh, trial and error with the uh, with the costume. I call it my black tie uniform. I'm in uniform just like the players. So when you see me dressed like that, it's all business. Okay, talk about the. We'll go to the back to the violators soon. You're how old were you when you started loving the Raiders? Wow, I was in the eighth grade, so I figured thirteen maybe. And what? Wh how good were the Raiders when you were thirteen? Kind of go back to the history. You know what, what it was, Neil? It wasn't about how good they were. They had my favorite colors on, silver and black. Uh, I didn't like all the rainbow colors around the league, so I kind of leaned towards teams with the darker colors. Like I used to watch uh, Dick Buckers and Sayers with uh, Chicago. and uh, But I ended up seeing these guys playing the Chiefs, and – there was a big brawl on the field. And, you know, the cameras naturally zoom in on the action. So I'm looking, I saw the shield, but I didn't see the one-eyed pirate with the two swords. It was love at first sight. I'm like, those, those guys are from California. I'm in Mississippi right now, mind you. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was in Mississippi. So I decided as a kid, I don't care what it takes, that's where I'm going to go and live so I can be as close to those guys as possible and go to a game and not just watch it on TV. So that was a childhood dream. So it took me from, I say, I graduated high school in 74. I did two years at Jackson State where I met Walter Payton, Jackie Slater, oh, wow. Robert Brazil, Ricky Young. And these guys ended up playing on Sunday. So that just further fueled that enthusiasm to get out of here to get to where these Raiders were, come hell or high water. So 1977, I made it to California via the gong show. And uh, the rest is history, man. They moved to LA and I used to walk to the Coliseum. I was that close and it was like a dream come true. Violator probably never would have come out if it wasn't for those heckling home fans of ours. So that was in LA in 91. But you, so you were a fan in Oakland as well. So let's kind of go back when you finally went out to California with, as a Raider fan, you talk about some greatest memories, uh, except the immaculate reception, which as a Pittsburgh guy and we're on in Pittsburgh, we don't want to talk about, but there was a lot with Kenny Stabler and just, uh, and Al Davis. Let's talk about Al Davis for a second. I mean, what an owner. And John Madden, you think of those people, and you're talking that age time. Violator wasn't born yet, but you were a Raider fan during that time period. So, kind of as as you're going to be the super fan, the one inducted in the Hall of Fame. And we'll talk about more of that at the end of this uh, episode as a, as the story. But talk about why you bleed so much silver and black when it comes to al davis and john madden first of all ken stabler and all the different things and you're talking the 70s let me see if i can go through them in order uh when you when you bring up al davis right away maverick 
He wasn't your yes. average kind of cat. And he went against the grain. And I just love that because I was sort of that same mentality. Uh, you come to a coach, John Madden. We're still trying to replace that kind of emotion on the sideline, exactly. that passion for the game. Even as uh, blown out as it is now with becoming entertainment and business, back then it was war. And all these fans that gathered on each Sunday came there to root on their gladiators. And that's the way I still look at the game today. You see, I thought I start thinking about that. So you think about the Raiders at that time in the 70s, and then ultimately they had some down period. Yes. But then when they came back, oh, they came back with Jim Plunkett as Tom Flores as the coach and the Stickham year when they beat the Eagles. Now that's Raider football. When all of them had their Stickham on and they were – they were the outlaws, kind of like the only outlaws like the NBA with the Detroit Pistons. They were the bad boys of football, that team. And you were a huge fan then of them, right? Wouldn't you talk so, about? So proud of them, Neil. Listen, look, I, I'm pitching the game as it, as it unfolded. You know, here are the Philadelphia Eagles and they're the, the city of brotherly love, the tough guys. But here come these gladiators of mine carrying a big stick, didn't have to say much because they let their hitting do the talking. And, uh, you know, we were the underdogs. I, no, I think Philly was the underdog in that game, matter of fact. Even though you were a wild yes. card, the first wild card team to win the yes, Super Bowl. exactly. Right? I Nine so. and seven. And, uh, but just the way that they took over that game, you know, the interceptions, the dominance, if, if that didn't make you fall in love and want to marry them again, I don't know what would have. That defense – just completely dominated Philly, which had a great squad now, mind you. Uh, but it was, just wasn't their day. That dominating pressure, that nonstop, it didn't matter whether it was a first string or a second string guy in there. They just wreaked havoc on every play that they tried to run. And I was just like, wow, dude. At that time, I still hadn't been to the Oakland Coliseum yet, and I never got a chance because they moved to L.A. right after that. Wow. So, okay. So in the LA days, you get, you go get, become the violator. Now the biggest memories, when were the Raiders, the best, the violator days, I don't, then we'll talk more about, you know, still you had great teams, but we, we just talked about some unbelievable years, but as the violator, I'm trying to remember. So the last time that the Raiders won the Super Bowl be, before the nineties was against the Redskins. Yeah. Right. And what year was that? You because you're the expert of this, yes. Right? That was and that was a fan. Now, this is a game where we were the underdogs going in, and it was like a quiet storm. You've got Coach Flores at the helm, you know, and he was a to me was like a quiet assassin, you know. Uh, he would kill you and just have a smile on his face while he did it, kind of like that guy on the patch on the helmet, you know. But yeah, uh, this team was a well put together team, we had that grit. You know, he, we had Lyle Alzado in his, he had passed his prime, but he still had enough grit. And uh, guys like Ted Hendricks, uh, Howie Long, who was like a youngster there. And, uh, you know, Marcus Allen, oh, best God, running back, I think. Just unbelievable. unbelievable. But just the, how he just blew up the Super Bowl. The whole team concept back then, you yeah. know, and just having Plunkett lead that team. Washington didn't even know what hit him. 
as we watched that game unfold, you know, and, you, and they had the hogs and this and that. And matter of fact, I was friends with uh, some of the hogettes there. So I'm just giving them some of that love. You know, they had the hogs and, you know, John Riggins yeah. and Joe Theismann. And these guys Everyone were thought it was going to be that year. Everyone thought it was going to be a Redskins Super Bowl yes. win. And we were just sitting there like, okay, yeah, we'll see how this turns out. And it started off slow. But like I say, when we when we got into that groove, man, it was party over. We just walked away from them and beat them convincingly with mostly a ground attack that they had they couldn't do nothing with. And of course, we had the great Cliff Branch going long and deep. So now the days of the Violators. What would you say your favorite season when you've been a Violator? Wow, um, let's see. I'll have to go back to I think our. 2002 season where we actually beat the Tennessee Titans, uh, Steve McNair, Eddie George, and those guys in a home playoff game in Oakland. That was the ultimate as far as a fan. Didn't have seats that day, but I got a phone call from the front office, catch a flight and get there. They had two seats for me in, you know, front row 50 yard line. So that's the fastest I'd ever dressed in my life. I, you know, had to go on the airplane, fully dressed for the game. So, of course, that's right after 9-11. So I went through, like, a full body cavity search at the airport. And uh, they actually had to hide me uh, back in the beverage section until everybody got on the plane because there were people that saw me coming to the airport and said they would not get on the plane with whoever that is. So basically, so if we look at other history, and I've been hitting a lot of different history points, haven't I, for you as a fan. You've nailed every one of them. There's no question sent, guys. He is the super fan. He's asking the questions. You talked about, I remember the days of uh, when you guys beat McNair, but every year the Raiders always kind of come close or close to making the playoffs. But let's go back before that to a loss of losing Al Davis. How was that to you? That had been hard. It, 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 you know, I always looked at him as the don of the league and just even as his as he declined in his health, you know, we still much respect for him to this day still because nobody will ever be to us as great owner as he was. Uh, just watching him decline was hard, but he still had that grit. And that's what Raider fans have is just a grit because whether our team wins or loses and we've had a few decades of downtime, but that allegiance from us had never waned and we still feel the stadium. Uh, but just losing Al was like, uh, it was some sad years there because we knew that we're gonna be front office changes. Even the philosophy may have changed in the front office, but, and we saw a lot of that and I've witnessed a lot of that, but it's still, as long as that shield is what it is, this heart was still pumped, that silver and black. Now, talking about favorite teams, you talked about one of your favorite teams as a Violet. Or what other seasons or big memory or certain game that, that you really remember as a fan of those years? Wow. Uh, the year the tuck rule. I, I may as well go there. That's one of the most painful uh, oh, that's got to be that's got to be the death of the Raiders in a way that tuck rule. And that was the worst thing that ever happened in football. The Patriots that had to beat up my Steelers 
and be on top forever. So that pretty much took the crown of a team. Who was the quarterback of the Raiders? I'm glad you brought this up. I know you don't really want to, like I brought up the immaculate reception, but uh, what year was that to remind myself and who did, was the Raiders quarterback? Cause they were good that year. They could have really gone far. And then that happened. That was in 2000. That was our year to, to go. But like I said, I'm, this is just my philosophy now. Post 9-11, they didn't want renegades like us representing the league in the Super Bowl. That team was that good, led by Rich Gannon and, of course, uh, John Gruden. Yes. Uh, a seasoned veteran team with guys from every other team, their cast off, we had them, and we were a bunch of bandits, a, a bunch of crazed dogs, to use Lawrence Taylor's line. And they knew it. So, yes, the Cheeserits. We don't, and thank goodness Tom Brady decided to leave. I mean, that was the greatest day in the world. And I don't know if Bel Belichick will ever be good if it was just Brady, because what if, you know, Brady never would have came in? the game it's just uh, just don't talk about the Patriots but I, I am not a huge Raider fan either because I'm a Bronco fan so you know uh, but let's go now the role of what your role as a super fan is especially to be possibly inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame what do you think what qualifications does that super fan have to have what do you give me some of those areas that they need to be able what like from the fan that shows up to the game, but the one that's been nailing trivia question after trivia question uh, about the Raiders, but any sports team, what do you think is those, what qualifications make makes you a super fan? Well, the first word that pops out of my head is commitment because it takes that you're going to grow through your highs and your lows. Uh, like I explained already previously, we've had highs and lows, very low lows, and I've witnessed some highs. I'm still wanting to be around to actually go to another Super Bowl that we're actually in this time. Now, I may be on, on a walker. I'm on a, I'm on a cane now. I may be on a walker by then, but I don't care. If I got to crawl in there on a, on a, on a dolly, uh, just to be there would be fulfilling for me. But a fan has to be considered themselves, male or female, an ambassador of that. But I, I just super answers all those different things. Everyone go vote again, website. We're going to pop this out all on social media as well. The link uh, with the teasers and also the video so that people can go right into the link. And then also, if you're listening on the radio, know just to go ahead to this website. Tell us again. Go to Ford Hall of Fans dot com forward slash football and use this just vote that's all i need you to do is just vote thanks wayne i appreciate your time appreciate it neil keep yeah, inspiring brother right, you too bye-bye you're listening right. to the neil haley show i'm watching the neil haley show and we'll be back in just a moment